to 13. For six years, starting in 1959, a distinctive voice and melody was transmitted every week into millions of American homes. The voice belonged to Rod Serling, and the melody was, well, is now classic Americana. I'm not going to try to simulate it for it, but the show is The Twilight Zone, or was The Twilight Zone, on October 2nd, 1959, with that music, that distinctive music playing, Mr. Serling said this on the very first episode of The Twilight Zone. He said, there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is in the middle ground between light and shadow. My voice doesn't do justice to what he used to do. Between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of man's fear and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Now today, when I read Jude verses 5 through 13, you're going to think we stepped into an area called the twilight zone. I'm just being straight up with you because this is the way it's going to seem. Um, we're not going to pretend like this text that we're going to read here in just a minute isn't powerfully strange because it is. You read it and you think, what in tarnation am, I, in tarnation am I supposed to do with this? For starters, Jude speaks of Jesus delivering people from Egypt, delivering the people of Israel from Egypt. I've, I've read Genesis and Exodus. I don't see his name in there at all. We're going to see angels who leave their place to take up with beautiful women. We're going to see, hear about a smoldering city. We're going to hear about an archangel disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. All of that is very strange and doesn't make it into any cross-stitching pillows or the Caleb verse of the day. Um, it's very, very strange. And while some of the images of, the passage, of this passage we're going to read or obscure, or odd, or off the beaten path, it's possible to get so distracted and feel like this is so strange that we just try not to under even worry about what it says. We're going to walk in this middle ground between light and shadow. And if we do, we can miss the main point of what Jude is trying to say. Though he uses obscure images... His main point is obvious. He's calling us very simply to remember what we know to be true. He's calling us to remember. Now, Jude is commending this daily practice, this duty of Christians to remember what we know to be true. The issue is not that we forget, though we do. The issue is not that one day we'll wake up and say, you know what, I forgot who Jesus is and I forgot what he has done. I forgot he's a savior that died for sins and rose so that I may live and calls me to complete obedience. We're not going to forget the facts of Jesus, but Jude is not pressing us to remember mere facts. He knows that we're all tempted to forget that Jesus is all that matters. He knows that the problem for us is that we can be distracted by all kinds of things that are trending and popular and fancy and impressive and forget that continuing to believe in Jesus is what matters most. 
to continue to stay close to our Savior is what matters most. He knows that we're apt to forget that there is no one worth building your life upon like Jesus. He knows that we're apt to get distracted. He knows that we're apt to follow what's popular and not embarrassing. And so he calls us this morning to keep believing. Keep believing in this Jesus that you already know. Remember to keep believing in this Jesus that you already know. And don't push him to the side of your life. Don't relegate him to the, to the corners of your life. Don't push him off the stage, but make him front and center and keep following. And avoid gospel distortions and strive for holiness. Because he is what matters and we can forget that. May we not forget. May we not forget to remember that we must keep believing in Jesus and not be taken away by all kinds of fanciful, glittery, wonderful sounding lies. So we're going to take a step toward remembering, even though it might feel a little bit like the Twilight Zone. And I'm going to read in Jude chapter 5. I'm sorry, Jude chapter 1, and there's only one verse. Jude, Jude verse 5 to verse 13. And we will remember together that we must keep believing in Jesus. So let's take that step together. Verse 5. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Here's God's Word. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve it as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning and animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, we open your word, and every time we do this, every time we open your word, we ask for your help. And today's no different. Lord, we don't want to just merely understand. We want to be changed. We want to be encouraged to continue to follow you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that even though this passage is powerfully strange and has all kinds of different elements that we're not used to reading in the Bible, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to understand 
that in the midst of these strange images, you're calling us to remember to keep believing, to keep following, to stay close to you. And I pray that that would be the effect of this encouragement from your word today. And in your name we pray. Amen. We get three reasons to keep, to remember to keep believing in Christ. Three reasons this morning from Jude verses 5 through 13. First, the final judgment is coming. Second, truth is already clear. And third, false teachers are murderers. First, the final judgment is unavoidable. And we see that in Jude 5 through 7. Jude is reminding us in these three verses that no one really gets away with anything. And what he does is he points us to three Old Testament examples of rebellion against God. He points to these situations to remind us that we must keep believing in Jesus and those, only those that persevere until the end will be saved. If you wander away, you will be punished. If you wander away into rebellion, punishment will come down on your head. And that's what he's talking about as he points us to the Old Testament story of the nation of Israel, of these angels of heaven and Sodom and Gomorrah. First, Israel in verse 5. He says, now I want to remind you, all of you, although you all fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, if you know the Bible, you know the story. And it's, it's described in Exodus chapter, well, the book of Exodus. The nation of Israel was sla- saved by God from slavery, from By the mighty hand of God, he got the people out after 400 years of slavery via 10 different plagues that came upon the people of Egypt, and this led to them releasing the nation of Israel. But even after the release, they were pursued by this army, and the Lord saved Israel by parting the Red Sea and then having that Red Sea come and crush the Egyptians. After all the nations saw this, all the nations saw their means of rescue. They were free. They were slaves no more. And God had promised that he would take them on to the promised land. And so the people were to go then from Egypt to Canaan to the promised land. Now, instead of recognizing, hey, listen, if he says he's going to do something, he will do it. The people began to murmur and complain and Stop believing. And so we see this in Numbers chapter 14 because there we have a recording, well, 13 actually, we have a recording of Moses sending 12 spies to spy out the promised land. 10 came back and said, we're dead meat. We can't take them. They're massive. They're giants. Two came back and said, the Lord has promised this. Let's go. Let's do this. We can take it. He has said this. And so the people, the people, they actually... Listen to the 10, and Numbers 14 records how the people responded. Then all the congregation, that's the whole nation of Israel, raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would not it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now these are the people who have been saved by God's hand. These are the people who had seen miraculous 
evidences of God's power on their behalf. These are the people who heard that they were that knew they knew slavery, brought out into freedom, and then were promised a land, and they say, let's go back to Egypt. And then the Lord says, in verse 11, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done to them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God didn't strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them in that moment, but what he did was he destroyed that first generation. He refused to let that generation go into the promised land until they all died. Now, that's what Jude said. So what's, Jude's trying to, what's Jude trying to say? Even people who are associated with the people of God may not be saved if they do not persevere in believing to the end. These, the nation of Israel had seen powerfully amazing things. They had seen the hand of God. They knew what it was to stand on the outskirts of Mount Sinai and see lightning and thunder and hear the, the earth hear and feel, feel the earth rumble beneath them. And yet they turned away in unbelief. Similarly, even though we might have had spiritual experiences or have done things in the name of the Lord, and if you're looking at that as, oh, I'm safe because I have this spiritual resume to present, that resume does no good if you do not continue to believe in Jesus. That resume is nothing if you do not continue to believe in Jesus. Now, one of the interesting things that I just skipped over in verse 5 is Jude tells us that somebody interesting, not, somebody we love, um, but we're not used to reading about him in the Old Testament, did both the saving and the destroying of the nation. Did you see that? In the ESV it says, Jesus. What did Jesus do? He both saved and destroyed the nation, the, the people that didn't believe. Now this is interesting because this is a full two millennia before the baby is born in Bethlehem, and yet we have Jude telling us that Jesus is the saving and the destroying one of the nation of Israel. That's odd, right? It's just par for the course. Get ready because we're seeing odd this week. We're going to see odd throughout Jude. Jude is like, he's not afraid to bring up awkward conversations, so here we go. It shouldn't be surprising to us on one hand that God the Son was active before his incarnation. Paul says that Jesus, in 1 Corinthians, was with the people in the wilderness. We also read the writer to the Hebrews says this of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater than of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Gee, Moses looked ahead to Jesus. Moses looked ahead to Christ, which is Messiah, and he was saved. So we see Jesus active even before his incarnation. But one thing is for sure, and Jude wants us to get this. Those, even those that were associated with the people of God just because of that association, that doesn't mean that, they have, that they're, they're free to just be safe and, and question God and, forget and, and, and not wander away. Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. And he will destroy all those who do not believe, even people 
who have spiritual resumes that are impressive. Even people who say, I've taught the Bible, or I've, I've done all sorts of things. This is what we see in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't cast demons out. No, you didn't prophesy. No, you didn't do many mighty works. Rather, these are people who did not believe in Jesus until the end. And therefore, did not really trust him. If the people of Israel who could see, who saw all of these things, can be destroyed because they stop believing, so can we. And that's what Jude wants us to recognize. Not only the people of Israel, but these angels in heaven as well. Look at verse 6. So here we have Israel was judged for a lack of belief. Now we have another group that was judged for their rebellion. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now that's strange, but here's the idea. We read what he's talking about in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We read this in Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, or the angels from heaven, the sons of God, angels, same idea here, uh, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, so they took as their wives any they chose. So we have these angels becoming men and marrying beautiful women. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came, or that's the angels, came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, and there were many, and, and there were mighty men. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So what happened? The angels left their proper place, their home, to come and do what is unnatural. Now, There, I'm not going to describe all of it, but I can say this. That's clearly unnatural. And what happened? What happened? The Lord said, you know what? You're not just going to continue to be able to wreak this kind of havoc. I'm going to lock you up. I'm going to keep you in chains until that final day. It's going to get stranger. In fact, I read all kinds of, all kinds of literature that talks about what are called the watchers. Don't Google that, I can tell you. Um, it'll give you nightmares. But the Jewish people had the watchers that were out there and these were the watchers who were watching mankind and they decided man the daughters of men are pretty let's give up our place with God and go and marry them and start all over brand new and so these people these angels that are that became people God says no you're going actually to be locked up and you will be destroyed on the final day so they did not get away with that rebellion either so Israel rebelled against a God who brought them out of slavery. The angels rebelled against a God they stood in the presence of for the love of beautiful women. Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled as well. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, likewise in the term like the angels. So angels indulged in sexual immorality um, because they became men and slept with women. Also, 
Sodom and Gomorrah, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So they, he talks about the folks in Sodom and Gomorrah indulging in sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desire, which in the scriptures mean homosexuality primarily, although there was all manner of sexual immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah. So here's the point of what Jude's saying with the people of Israel, the angels in heaven, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Rebellion will not go unpunished. Rebellion will not go unpunished. Sin will not go unpunished. Even if everybody's applauding you, even if it seems natural, even if it's something that everybody says, this is what you should be to be authentic to yourself, the Lord says, rebellion to God and his purposes will not go unpunished. And we must remember that our only way to make it out of this kind of punishment is by believing in Jesus Christ. We are called, all of us, to remember that we must keep believing in him and that there is no no one who can live in open rebellion and get away with everything. Even if you are living a double life and nobody knows what you're doing, the Lord does and he will one day, he will one day destroy those who are flagrantly rebellious, whether anybody knows it or not. And we must believe that that is true because all of us, all of us must believe that there is no hope for one who chooses to live a life of utter rebellion. Now, we do know also as Christians that we have been and are rebels who have gone our own way. We might not be as dramatic as these mysterious angels or the citizens of, so of Sodom, but we have all been rebels just the same. And there is a provision for rebels. Jesus, who destroyed all that did not believe among the nation of Israel, was destroyed by God to save any rebels who would be willing to turn from their rebellion. The only escape from this kind of judgment that we see on Israel and the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah is the protection that's offered in Jesus Christ. He has already absorbed God's wrath and it's our call to remember that we must not forget to entrust ourselves to Him. We must keep believing, not on the one hand fixate on sin and assume that we're totally unworthy and there's no way that He could forgive us, or fixate on excusing sin and saying, this is just the way I am. If you understood, you would get it. But rather, fixing ourselves upon Jesus, knowing that he is our only hope. He is our only hope both today, tomorrow, and forever. And we must keep believing in him. We must remember to keep believing in him. Otherwise, we will be crushed like Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah was. Jesus is our only, our only safe passage. Final judgment. This final judgment is unavoidable. Secondly, the truth is already clear. This is what we see in Jude 8 and 10. 8 through 10. This truth is already clear. This is what false teachers always do. They twist things. So like the scriptures, what we have here from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, this is the revealed word of God. God has spoken to us through 45 different authors to communicate what we need to know about him and how to be saved. To communicate who we are apart from Jesus and who we will be with Jesus. Apart from this word, we do not have anything to hang our hat on and we have no idea what to do to be saved. But because of what the message of this book is, we know that we can put our faith unreservedly in Jesus Christ and know that we will be saved if we trust him to the end. Yet, false teachers always 
twist that up. They always say, listen, that's simplistic. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that false teachers try to twist this kind of, that this clear message up. Always, always, always. And I can't get into all the different flavors, but one of the things you can always recognize by false teachers is they either minimize God's clear word, reject it altogether, or twist little things so that you, people can get away with what they want to get away with. All of, the, all of the above is what happens. In Jude's case, the people that he was interacting with, we can see this in, in verse 8, these people relied on dreams, which led to them defiling the flesh and rejecting authority. They also blasphemed the glorious ones, which we'll get to in a minute. So I can understand what he means by relying on dreams and defiling the flesh and rejecting the authority. What we, hear, what we see here is that these people are, quote, dreamers, Literally, they come up with new and novel teaching, and they're telling people to follow this new and novel teaching. As we saw two weeks ago, this was in the name of being gracious. Remember, we saw what they were doing at that time, and in that place was encouraging people to wander off into sin in the name of grace. They both redefined sin and grace. And we saw a couple weeks ago that grace is not permissiveness, it's not laziness. Grace is stubborn. Grace is never an excuse for sin, but always an aid in our fight against sin. Grace empowers us not to trust ourselves, but to fight against what might seem natural or even right apart from the Bible. Grace enables us to say no to sin. But when false teachers come to the Bible, they twist, they twist, they remove, they add. They say, well... Is that literally what it, what it means? Or your interpretation is just a means of oppression. What the false teachers do in this age and all the ages that have ever lived is play upon our desires and say, well, you need to be true to yourself. Do what feels right. Be authentic. Well, love conquers all. Grace means you're safe. Just do what you want. You'll be fine. And what it leads to, as Jude tells us, is people who defile the flesh. That's those who enter into sexual sin and then reject authority, which means to reject the lordship of Jesus and essentially deny him by the testimony of their life, by their pattern of, of disobedience. Now, mark this. No one is as obedient as they ought to be. All of us fall short. All of us must trust in Christ. But when we give ourselves over to a lifestyle of disobedience without caring, that's the difference. The saved will sin, but never be comfortable with it. We're never going to be perfect. We're just called to be faithful. When, when the sin stops bothering us, then that's when it's a problem. And that's what these false teachers were, were encouraging people to do. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We had this dream, or there's this message. You're going to be fine. Now, we see that these people were relying on dreams, defiling the flesh, and rejecting authority. Jude also tells us that they were slandering or blaspheming the glorious ones. Those are the angels. Now, how they were slandering angels... I don't know. 
And it's not because I didn't read everything in the world on how they could be slandering angels. I did. And I read a whole bunch of smart people who have all kinds of fancy arguments, and it was just a fancy way of saying, nobody really knows. So I'm going to tell you, nobody really knows, and I'm not going to pretend like it's some easy thing. This is why we preach expositionally, because I'm like, I would never, ever pick verse 8 in Jude to talk about, because I read it and I go, what in the world does that mean? And I read other people who say with much fancier language, what in the world does that mean? And they don't know. We don't know. But if you're slandering angels, stop because it's bad. (laughs) And then just to make things clearer, Jude goes ahead and compares the false teachers to Michael the archangel of all people. Michael the archangel. So then he tells us a story that is nowhere else in the Bible. So let's let's look at it. Verse 9, why not? But when... The, Arch- Michael, the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. What? <laughs> Jude is such a man here too, right? There are all kinds of details that we don't get. We don't know where this fight was. We don't know when it happened. We don't know how Michael felt. We don't know who was watching, right? This is where... If he had someone helping, like, I, there's a whole lot of detail I'd like to know. It's like when my wife asks me, was the baby born? Yes. Is everything okay? Yes. And then all the questions that follow, I say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Did you even talk to them? Did you ask any questions? No, I didn't. Jude is not, Jude, Jude is not giving us very many details because we have no idea when this happened. Deuteronomy records the death of Moses, which we have here in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 5. He says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But nobody knows the burial place, the place of his burial, to this day. Apparently, when we read, and the Lord buried him. The way the Lord buried him was by saying, Michael, go bury him. And we don't have any account of him running up against the devil, but that's happened. So, but the point isn't those details that we would like to know, which we can find out later when we see him in heaven. The point isn't to pique our interests about how Michael handled, uh, about what happened, but to see how Michael handled himself. Michael is... An archangel. Now, an archangel is the chief among... He is the chief among all angels. Michael is a word that means who is like God. And this, is a, this angel has serious authority. If he was a visitor to our church this morning, we would all be frightened away. But here, here is Michael who stands in the presence of God and does his bidding and is an archangel above myriads upon myriads of angels. As he interacts with the devil, he doesn't say, I rebuke you. What does he do? He says, the Lord rebuke you. What Michael does is not to presume that he has the authority to rebuke the devil on his own authority because he doesn't have that. The authority of judgment the authority of determining right from wrong, the authority, the authority to judge the evil and the good, that belongs to God. And Michael, he doesn't presume to step in and say, I command you, devil, do X, Y, and Z. He would never do that. 
Instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you and the Lord would rebuke him. So in other words, these false teachers were taking authority that they did not have to tell people to do things they could not do or should not do. Michael, Michael was so aware that he wasn't God that he wouldn't even rebuke the devil in his own name. And these people, these false teachers, they blaspheme or slander all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. In other words, when you refuse to identify an authority greater than yourself here in the Word of God or in the person of Jesus, you don't become more human, you become less human. You become like an unreasoning animal, responding instinctively instead of responding with what's right and what's wrong. We must, not, we must not forget. We must remember to keep believing in Jesus. We must remember that our authority, our authority is God and His Word. We must remember that we do not carve our own way through this world in the way that we want to, but we are submitted in every respect, at every time, in every moment to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we must fight to remember and to keep believing that He is authoritative in our lives and that He is not just our Savior who died for our sins, He's also our Lord who commands our every direction and owns us all. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And the false teachers... False teachers want you to put your hope and trust anywhere else but in Him. But this truth is already clear. So we've seen the truth is already clear. We've seen the final judgment is unavoidable. We've also, we also see in Jude 11, 12, and 13 that false teachers are murderers. False teachers are more murderers. And false teaching is lethal. This is why Jude goes Old Testament on these false teachers in verse 11. He says, woe to them. If you want to see a bunch of woes, go read the first six chapters of Isaiah. And this is this idea. Woe to to them. In other words, what he's saying is he's calling down judgment upon these for all the damage that they are doing. Because they're leading people astray. Cain, like Cain who killed his brother out of jealousy. Like Balaam, who was a prophet for, who was a prophet who put himself up for hire and compromised the nation of Israel by telling them to marry foreign wives. By Korah, who challenged Moses and attempted a coup with 250 other people. Jude says, woe to them and woe to people like them. Woe is an Old Testament way of saying that God's righteous wrath is about to break down over your head. Woe to you who are false teachers and lead the people of God astray by trying to get them to trust in anything else but Jesus. If he were speaking today, he might say, Woe to you who call obedience legalism. Woe to you who call evil good. Woe to you who twist the grace of God. Woe to you who lead people into sexual immorality. Woe to you who have hidden agendas for self-aggrandizement. 
Woe to you who use people instead of serving people. Woe to you who sow division among friends. Woe to you who seed suspicion about the Bible. Woe to you who preach that illness comes because of a lack of faith. Woe to you who legalistically bind the consciences of people. Woe to you. And this is the way it is for every false teacher and all of their messages. They are murderers. Because any who follow their message to trust in other things or in other people aside from Jesus, they take into their their own selves a poison that is eternally lethal. And Jude wants us to know this. He wants us to know this so that we can keep believing in Jesus and not be pulled away. What happens if we're pulled away? See, this this is the nice thing about There only being one way to salvation, only through Jesus Christ. That means every other message that communicates that you will be saved in any other means is false. So there's only one way. There's only one way toward salvation, and that is by confessing your sins, repenting and turning from your sins, and trusting Jesus with your life. Everything else, how does he describe it? Verse 12 hidden reefs. Verse 12, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom and utter darkness has been reserved forever. Hidden reefs. Those that believe that there's other ways, that there are other ways to be happy, that there are other ways to be fulfilled outside of Christ. This is, this is, those that teach this are like hidden reefs. This is danger just under the surface. A reef just under the water lies in wait for a ship looking for safe harbor. And as that ship glides in and runs across the reef, it tears the hole on the bottom and the ship sinks. False teachers destroy people looking for safe harbor. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They may look like they care for others, but at bottom they don't sacrifice for others. They expect others to sacrifice for them. They care only for themselves. False teachers use people and destroy people. They're waterless clouds. Those who look like they might shower rain and refreshment on a thirsty land, that's just the way things look. They promise refreshment but have nothing to offer. And people, they, false teachers and their false messages murder people with the scorching heat of vice. They're fruitless trees. They look like, even though they have, they have leaves, they might look like they have fruit and sustenance to offer, but they can really not do anything. Because if you're hungry and you need some truth to feast on, you must go somewhere else because they are only fruitless trees. False teachers murder people with empty promises. And they're like wild waves of the sea. That means they're random and they're unreliable. They're passionate about this teaching and then that teaching and then the other moment. They're about this or they're about that. They're pointed in all kinds of different directions all at once. And they're unreliable. False teachers and their false ideas murder people by giving them an unreliable foundation to live upon. They're wandering stars. No mariner can chart a course by a star that moves. You will end up going in the entirely the wrong direction. False teachers do just that. They murder people by leading them away from Jesus. We need not be taken in. Jesus, we must remember that we must keep believing, keep following Jesus. We must 
not forget to keep following Jesus. Jesus is our safe harbor. There is no hidden danger with him. He is, when he says he is good, we can take his word for it, knowing that he is good. He is a shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. He is a shepherd who even now is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the needs of the saints. He lays his life down. He is not a waterless cloud. He is, he has the water of life. Coming to Christ is always refreshing, always invigorating, always. He always has new mercy, new grace to give his people. He's not like a fruitless tree. He has food and sustenance. He is said to be the bread of life. He gives life and hope and meaning. He's not random. He's not like a wild wave of the sea. He is a rock. He's a rock that you can build your life upon. He is a rock that you can put all of your hopes upon. He is a rock that you can trust both your eternity and the eternity of everybody that you've ever loved. He is that rock that will not shake and cannot be moved. And he is the opposite of random and unreliable. He's not a wandering star that is here one moment and gone the next. He is that north star fixed in the sky. And you set your direction by him and by him alone. And if you veer off course, all you need to do is look back to that star knowing that he will lead you home. We need not be taken in by these false teachers. Woe to them in Jude's day, woe to them today, and woe to them for all time. But Jesus, Jesus has taken upon himself the woe that we deserve. And we must remember to keep believing in Jesus. What do you, what do you, as we, as we think about this reality that we must remember to keep believing in Jesus because the final judgment is unavoidable, the truth is clear, and false teachers and their false teaching is murder. What do you need to believe about Jesus today? What are you tempted to sort of mail it in? For me, let me just be honest, yesterday was a tough day for me in many respects that I won't go into here. And in the midst of the struggle, it's very tempting to think that something else holds my key to happiness outside of Jesus. It's tempting for me to think, because I can't understand how this will work together for good in my life or in anybody's life, or how this situation, why I'm having to deal with this again, or why this challenge is coming to me again, I, I can't. Just because I can't understand doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan. My temptation yesterday was just to say, listen, I think beyond, I think that going back to bed is going to provide a whole lot more solace than, than Jesus. I think that that sleep that I'm going to enjoy, you know, I'm just going to trust in the power of the covers to ward off all trouble, to ward off all sadness, my magic comforter I'm going to pull over my head and believe in the power of my sleep and the restorative, the restorative good that sleep can give. Or maybe just the salve of isolation. See, in that, it's in those moments where we have to ask ourselves, what do we really believe? It's easy to believe in Jesus when things are going well. 
It's easy to believe in Jesus when your bank account's full and your kids rise up and call you blessed. It's easy to believe in Jesus when you feel good and it doesn't hurt to walk. But it's hard. It's hard when the world and the troubles of life press in. And it's in those moments we must remember, we must sear it into our minds and remember to keep believing in Jesus. Not just that he'll save us in the end, which he will, but that we must continue to build our lives upon him and that everything else that we pursue that is not in him or from him is building our lives on the sinking sands of passing opinion, sinking, the sinking sands of conventional wisdom, the sinking sands of trending on Twitter or likes on Facebook. We build our lives on anything of those, anything there and we fall and we will not be able to give, get up and we will be destroyed like the nation of Israel, like the angels who left their place, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But those of us who continue to put our trust day by day by day by day, not perfectly, not without flaw, we don't believe in him as much as we ought to, but as, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ day after day after day and say, my hope is not found anywhere else but in you, and my hope and my meaning and my purpose is not found anywhere else outside of you, as we do that on a regular basis, day by day, and remember that there is no place else and there is no one else who offers forgiveness of sin, who offers forgiveness, who offers grace and power to help you fight that sin, and no one else who can give you what Jesus has. When we find that and remember that we must keep believing in Him and maintain this belief all the way until the end, we know that though we are rebellious, like Israel, though we have been rebellious like the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who will see us through until the end as we hold on to him. Let's continue to keep holding on to him because he is the only, only safe place for us. Amen. All right, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I just ask that you would help us all, Lord. It's very tempting to think that there are other answers out there, um, that some other reality provides happiness, that we can be fulfilled if we just follow our feelings, love who we want to love, not have anybody tell us what to do, how to do it, Lord, I pray that we would be a people that are all the more convinced that we are called to hold on tight to you. And Lord, we know that as we hold on to you, you hold on with a stronger grip to us. But Lord, I pray that for anybody here who is pulled away with the, maybe the, the glamour and the glitz of living for money or living for sex or living for freedom or living for all kinds of other things, Lord, I pray that those those realities would just be as empty. Show them how empty that is and what the end is. Lord, I pray that the rebellion and the punishment for that rebellion that we saw here in your word would be 
just a reality to all of us, Lord. We want to stay close to you, knowing that you will punish those who wander away and don't come back. Lord, we pray that we would be numbered among those people who believe and who fight to believe and who remember to believe and who constantly and abidingly look to you. And so, Lord, may we not wander away. May we not be taken in with fine-sounding arguments that distract our minds from you. May we instead hold fast to you as you hold on to us. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.